Bienvenidos and welcome to episode 28 of the Jacobin Sports Show. I am Matthew Miranda, joined as always by the 2011 Bostonian Bell of the Ball, Jonah Birch. Jonah, how are you doing on this fine, temperate Wednesday afternoon in the Bronx? Oh, I'm excited. You know, it's 100 yeah. degrees here and, uh, <laughs> you know, mainly my life revolves around the NBA Summer League right now. It would be the one reason I would ever go to Las Vegas, would just, just to be, you know, to watch the Summer League games. So very, uh, very excited about that. Is your life and consciousness now, like, entirely about boxes? Like, whenever I move, I just start seeing the world, like, entirely in boxes. Yeah, I'm in the process of moving from a, a very small New York apartment to a very large house in Milwaukee that I don't really, larger than I need, so... You know, I'm trying to think about what kind of junk I could buy to fill it with. Uh, so if you have any crappy furniture or uh, art that you would like to share with me, um, I'm pretty sure I can find you a, a Kevin Garnett Brooklyn um, action figure if you'd like one to, to pair with your Paul Pierce. Distill my heart. I would love it. You know, I, I would put it <laughs> in, a, in a place of honor on my mantle. You know, the, the big ticket always is, uh, right? you know, it always, it always makes me happy to see. In today's episode, we're going to talk about athletes and mental health and the growing focus athletes are bringing to their mental health and all the ways that the institutions that profit off them are showing a lack of care about that mental health. We'll focus today on three athletes in particular, but this is a decades-long at least issue that impacts people all over the world. And I think it matters to everyone, not just because athletes are suffering and athletes are people too. But I think in particular, it's interesting because if these athletes, who in many cases are profit-producing, if not elite profit-producing humans, and they can be so disregarded and repeatedly put at risk of mental um, and physical health by people who don't give a damn about them, then we know that it can and is worse for a lot of anonymous people who are not revenue-producing athletes. So I think it's an important issue um, for everyone, whether you're in athletics or know people in athletics or are not at all. Um, into athletics. I just think it's something that is worth taking a look at. Having said that, let me introduce our guest. Our guest wears many hats. She is an educator. She's a historian and a scholar of Cold War hung slash Hungarian slash international sport. She's also a former Division I swimmer, and she is in our quest to complete the Triforce of hosts from the end of Sports Pod. She is number two. Hey. So we're almost there. We'd like to welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Johanna Mellis Ursinus. Dr. Ursinus, how are you doing? Did I get your name right? Yes, you did. And okay. Ursinus, which is good. <laughs> okay, good. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Hi. I'm so glad to be here. How are you two doing? Really good. Really glad to have you on. Let's dive right in, um, if you don't mind. And I want to start with, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post recently um, using Simone Biles, um, who pulled out of the all-around individual event at the Tokyo Olympics, citing mental health concerns. And you cited, you wrote a piece about um, Biles, but what I found really interesting, um, you wrote a piece that ostensibly is looking at how individuals are standing up for themselves, I think especially in the face of institutions that don't care about them. But what I found really interesting was your piece about, in particular, I think American athletes, American Olympians, begins with, um, a look back about almost 70 years ago at um, Hungary and Hungarian Olympians during the Cold War. And I'm curious, um, before we get into the discussion, what what the connection was there and what it was that led you to pursue that angle in the first place? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a couple of things led me there. So one is that, as you said earlier, my research is about um, sport during the Cold War. And I look at Hungarian athletes. I've interviewed um, a bunch of Hungarian athletes and coaches and officials. And so that's really like at the heart of my research. And so I'm always sort of thinking about what do their history sort of tell us about today and sort of how how can we learn from what they went through um, especially because from sort of an American and Western standpoint, sport during the Cold War, particularly um, behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe, is thought of as like the most horrible, the most abusive, right. you know, the most politicized, all of these things and basically the evil that we never want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when it came to writing about Biles, I mean, as some people saw on Twitter, I kind of wrote at one point, like, I will not pitch anything to write about the Olympic Games. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to do it because I'm trying to write my book. Um, But then the the whole the whole Biles thing came up and there were many, many pieces about her and about her, the decision that she made, some that were very supportive, thankfully, and then some that were horrifically not. And really what kind of encouraged me to kind of pitch this piece and to go for it was there's a sports journalist, a really excellent journalist that we've had on the end of sport. Her name is Adelie, Natalie Weiner. She writes mm-hmm. for um, Fanbite, I think. I can't remember what she writes for. And anyway, yeah, she tweeted. Had her in front of the pot. We had her on a couple weeks ago, too. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah, she's awesome. great. Yeah, she's wonderful. And she had tweeted out something like, what if all athletes quit the Olympic Games? And I kind of, I retweeted it. I'm like, hell yeah, like that'd be awesome. And then I'm thinking like, oh, like actually there is a moment in which um, over 300 Hungarian athletes, they didn't necessarily quit the Olympics, but they defected from Hungary, which at that time was a communist state in transition, kind of trying to get through the 1956 revolution, which had just happened. And so I I sort of pitched my research and the story of these Hungarian athletes defecting and kind of what happened afterwards in Hungary as an example of, you know, this is what happens when athletes outside of the U.S., when we have this example of athletes who have sort of stood up and kind of decided that they were going to remove their labor from the service of their organization, their institution, and their nation, um, depending on the context. And that's exactly what they did. And I can get into the nitty gritty details of the of the research if you want. Um, but basically, like, how does this example of athletes doing this in mass and doing this in such large numbers, like, how does this impact the domestic sport policies of a particular country and in a positive way that really benefited athletes? Again, going off this notion of, of the Natalie said of what happens if all athletes were to quit the Olympics, like that would make such a big statement. And that's what happened in the case of, of my research and, and these athletes that I've studied. Um, and so that was sort of the impetus for using it um, as an example and really writing that piece. So, you know, let me ask because I, I think that in the United States, people have some vague sense that in uh, in the Eastern Bloc, athletics was part of this kind of state propaganda machine and maybe an undifferentiated image of Eastern Bloc athletes during the Cold War as something like Ivan Drago, pumped full of steroids, you know, turned into machines against their will. Obviously, in the United States, a very different image of American athletes. And I wonder if the Simone Biles story and Osaka and everything that happened in these Olympics coming on top of the events around Larry Nasser and everything we've learned about U.S. Olympic gymnastics, I think, in particular, if you think that's a turning point in how people think about these things in the U.S. and whether this is some kind of breaking, you know, something has changed now uh, in the way the, the way people look at these things. 
Oh, that's such a tough question. I mean, I think to, I do think it kind of is a turning point. And I think it's a turning point. I don't think there was one moment. I mean, I think that the Larry, the Larry Nassar thing and sort of the women, you know, testifying, I think that was a very powerful moment. And the fact that they chose to do that and really be filmed, I think for a lot of women in particular was very powerful, but I, I think it's the combination of a lot of things going on, starting with, you know, the, the, the police killings of all these black people that's been ongoing for, I mean, most of her history, but seems to have really been in the spotlight more over the last decade. Uh, and then with Colin Kaepernick and, and, and Megan Rapino and all these people and that have just sort of done various iterations of athlete activism and kind of shown some agency and their willingness to speak out against their, either their conditions and, or the conditions that they or other people face out in the broader world. And so, you know, I do think, I think with sort of the slew of people with Osaka uh, specifically citing kind of mental health and Simone Biles doing the same. And then we obviously learn about with Biles that it's also like this very dangerous physical stuff that she was going through. I mean, Becca Myers, who was a Paralympic swimmer, she pulled out of the Paralympics because the U.S. and Paralympic Committee refused to allow her to bring her mother to aid her as someone who was partially deaf and blind. You know, so there are all these instances of athletes being like, I am not allowed to do the things that I need to do for my body. And therefore I'm going to remove myself, even if temporarily from a position, I guess I'm hesitant to call it a turning point because we haven't really seen the policy changes that need to happen. Um, like we kind of have these instances of athletes doing it and we have kind of these culture war discussions and the media about what, you know, how to respond to this. And, you know, like with Osaka, there was a lot of backlash from reporters being like, this is an issue of access. And like, we help athletes out. And like, I'm sorry, I don't think that's the right response that journalists should be saying, because with her, it was specific, specific instance of an athlete saying, journalists are too invasive, they're harming us. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so like I said, I'm really waiting for the policy changes. And, and it, when you speak, when you talk to people within the gymnastics community who are really clued into what's going on, and I cannot claim to be really clued in. Um, because I'm kind of like an outsider um, observer. I mean, it's like a, it's like a an ongoing, um, really like roiling debate about how to make changes that really help the athletes. And I mean, there are plenty of, of, of instances of coaches who have evidence of like having abused athletes who, sure. you know, maybe they're placed on a ban list, but then they're still able to, they're still able to train athletes. So there's so much going on within the world of gymnastics that is people are trying to push it in a better direction. We're not seeing that evenly across sports. I mean, so one thing we do on End of Sport, which I think you all do also, is really look at sports from a really broad angle and try to make connections across different sports. So I'm hesitant to call it a turning point because we're not seeing that happen across different sports. I mean, you know, within college sports, we have like um, name and likeness, which is in some ways like great for college athletes to make money off of their athletic endeavors. But they're basically in the gig economy where it's like they have to hustle to actually get paid. Their institutions, the NCAA do, are not going to be paying them anything. They're not motivated anymore to protect them from abuse to ensure that they get better health care, to ensure they get the educations they deserve. So, right, so like these institutions are dragging their feet to do as little as possible. So I guess until we kind of see more systemic, more, more broad and sweeping changes that actually are like rooted in what athletes want and athletes' voices, I guess I'm hesitant to call it a turning point. But athletes are feeling more empowered 
to say something, which I think that it for athletes is significant because athletes haven't felt that way, right? They, they've been feeling as if they have to conform, as if they have to be silent, as if they have to endure all of these conditions. Mm-hmm. So I guess from an athlete perspective, the fact that so many of them are feeling empowered to do that for athlete sort of positionality, maybe that's a little bit of a turning point, I guess is what I'm, what I feel comfortable saying. It would be nice to see some of, there have been moments, particularly last year, there was a moment during the NBA playoffs after, um, after Kyle Rittenhouse killed, I think his name was Jacob. Blake. I don't think I'm going to his last name. Jacob Blake. Thank you. In um, Wisconsin and the Bucks, you know, boycotted a playoff game and it seemed like, you know, everything stopped in a lot of sports. There was this moment, and this is certainly not to blame anybody, but when you have the reality of, like, Barack Obama is calling the players and encouraging them to play, like, there's no better indictment of, of how the institutions are not going to solve this problem when you have a centrist calling up and saying, not shut up and dribble, but, like, please dribble, as if right. that's going to change anything. When the, when the men's and women's um, basketball tournaments, NCAA tournaments, happened last year, it came kind of right at the time when some of these legal um, cases were coming to a head and the name, image, and likeness. And there was a talk at the time then that, like, maybe they'll maybe they'll boycott the beginning of the tournament. And you knew they would have the sport at their feet if they did that. But it, mm-hmm. it never actually comes to that, I suppose, in part because athletes are not a monolith. And even if it seems like it's mutually beneficial, people have different interests, um, which kind of speaks to one of the athletes. Well, one of the things I want to talk to you about, um, again, in your piece – about the Hungarian athletes, you mentioned how more than 300 of them um, in 1956 defected to the West. And in the Western storybook, I think the way we assume that story ends is they came to the West, they found wealth, they found success, they found freedom, all these great things. You had a very interesting story about um, an athlete from Hungary named Laszlo Tabori, um, Mm -hmm. who um, was the third person, third man ever to run a sub four minute mile. Do Do you want to tell us at all about what his experience was like coming over to the to the U.S. Absolutely, and I know I kind of strayed from my piece, so I'm I'm glad that you kind of brought us back to it. You're um, all good. Right. You're all good. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, in that the the, the kind of U.S. pro capitalist framework and from an American democratic standpoint, like, you know, the propaganda that's kind of preached to us all day long, right, is that people like that, defectors from communism will come here, would experience so much freedom and wealth and happiness, end of story, like very much a Disney story. Um, But what Tabori went through, um, he was one of the, so, so there were 300 total athletes who defected from the Olympic team there were 34 Hungarian athletes and, and, and coaches from the Hungarian Olympic team and four Romanian athletes from the Romanian Olympic team. The four Romanians were of Hungarian descent. Um, now, most of them, when they came over, a lot of them weren't too interested in continuing their careers. A lot of them were interested in kind of moving to white collar jobs. But a few of them that did had a very, really, really hard time because they were led to believe that like they were going to be able to continue their careers here. But the reality is that they didn't know English. I mean, only one of them spoke English very fluently. The rest of them did not. They didn't understand the capitalist sports system, the fact that they would have to self-fund everything. Mm. And and part of the story, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but part of the story is that um, Sports Illustrated worked with the CIA and worked with Time Magazine and some Hungarian-American emigres who were very anti-communist. And they all kind of worked together to convince the government to, to bring these athletes over from Melbourne, Australia, where the Olympic Games were. And then Sports Illustrated funded this like 
quote unquote freedom tour was literally called a freedom tour where they like paraded (laughs) them around the U S to have these like exhibition games where they would compete against themselves. And also hopefully like convince universities to offer these, these athletes scholarships and to create kind of coaching positions for the athletes. Right. I mean, it's, it's very much kind of like, if you are critical of the capitalist system, it's, it's very typical, but again, if, if you're not used, if you're if you're used to accepting the propaganda, then it seems like a surprise, you know. Um, what? That's incredible, so very, by the way. That the CIA backed. I, you know, it's like what is the Sports Illustrated is Encounter or something like they they they're just funding uh, SI. That's I had no idea. That's amazing. Sorry. Yeah, and, and no, no, it's okay. It's and I. This is not my research. This is no, research no, of my great. Yeah. A great friend, Toby Ryder, his book, Cold War Games, is like really blow your mind, um, Mm. kind of how far up it goes. Um, Essentially, like the leaders of Time Magazine, Time Incorporated and Sports Illustrated have very close connections to people within the CIA and State Department. I mean, which isn't really that surprising. But like, again, we don't really hear about um, mm-hmm. so with Tubor, he was one who came over and wanted to continue his career. And he tried for several years and his coach who had coached many amazing runners in Hungary, they tried to set up a few, um, club running, running clubs in California and essentially ran into tons of financial problems. And there was also, uh, and I didn't, I didn't include this in the piece, but there was also after a couple of years, Sports Illustrated and other publications kind of turned their backs on the Hungarians and started, t- and started talking about them, calling them like computers and very calculating and saying that they were yeah. not, you know, running with American sort of gutsiness and spontaneity, you know, like very kind <laughs> of, very kind of typical capitalist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and anyway, so his coach ends up leaving, even though he had trained all of these sub four minute milers, mm-hmm. he ended up leaving to go to Greece and Tabori for a while before he retired in the early 1960s was living in a house with like 12 other men that had three bedrooms in L.A. I mean, like and of course, it's L.A. So, you know, just very, very exploitative and just living in poverty. Um, and he ends up eventually becoming a coach and in the 70s, 80s, becoming a pretty successful coach. But it's not like a rags to riches story, right? Like, you know, he he still like lived in poverty. This is someone who ran a sub four minute mile. Um, and actually of the 34 Olympians and, and coaches who came over, either six or seven of them end up returning to Hungary and they return for a wide variety of reasons. But a couple of them return because like they were promised these careers that did not actually exist. And, and whereas in Hungary, they were provided with an income that was not an amazing income, but, but but what was better than average. They had institutional support to be athletes and coaches. They had health care. They could be celebrities. They could travel the world. You know, at the time, the press in Hungary, actually, and in the West really pitched these athletes as being like these, you know, overblown, like prima donna athletes. And in Hungary, they actually really downplayed how much support was given to these athletes because they didn't want people to, to think that they were like these spoiled people. But really, from our perspective, they were adequately supported. They were adequately funded. They were adi- they were they were pretty well taken care of compared to, you know, how NCAA and even the, the U.S. Olympic Committee totally underfunds athletes in sports today. Um, so it really kind of goes to show like how, again, how exploitative the American system is. And then in Hungary, 
because the state was like reeling from these mass defections and, and over 200,000 Hungarians had at total had left Hungary. So they're really kind of grappling to regain their political legitimacy. And so they needed athletes. And so what happens in Hungary and what I wrote about in that Washington Post piece was that the sport officials, like the leadership, they, they essentially decided that rather than coerce and force athletes to stay in Hungary and compete for the Hungarian state, that they needed to convince them to stay there. And so that's where we kind of have in Hungary um, what some athletes call like the, the best, most beautiful years of their lives. And this is because the government really backed off of their surveillance. I mean, they still surveilled, surveilled them and athletes still had to watch what they said. And I'm not like, you know, I'm not like an, a communist apologist. And I am very clear about the fact that athletes still worked under these constraints of the social system. But it is pretty significant that very, very few athletes defected from Hungary after 56. Compared to the over 300 that left in 56, there's only like 10 or 15 that leave thereafter. So really, really small numbers. Um, and athletes really spoke very highly of the sports system. And really the fact that the sports system really provided them, gave them community, really gave them these things that, again, we in the U.S. are still fighting for athletes to have, like basic needs and, and sort of health care and support. Um, so, so again, that's kind of why I use that example is because like athletes defected, they removed their labor, their athletic labor from the service of the state and the state listened to them and actually gave them what a lot of them were looking for. Um, and so that's really, I think to go back to, uh, Matt, what you were saying about sort of the fact that we have this kind of lack of mass action on behalf of athletes and it's really hindering them when really they, they really could affect a lot of changes if they were, to really, I don't, maybe they were to strike or to really remove their labor from institutions for a really significant period of time. I think it could open up a lot of possibilities if they were to do that. E even though that's a huge, it is a huge burden to ask of them. I do want to make clear that is a huge, huge thing to ask of them. And we shouldn't have to. But as you all said, it's not as if anyone else is going to do these things for them, right? They're going to continue to be exploited and be used on many levels. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, that there are still issues going on, you know, today that athletes are fighting for. Uh, you listed a few of them in your piece. One, a protection from abusive coaching, which I think is getting more attention, but is still, I think, an underexplored issue. And we're going to talk about that a little later, especially with the case of um, Kayla McCullough, um, who left the Washington Spirit and talked a lot about. She's the fourth player to leave. There's been a couple Sports in the NFL, I know the Giants have had a few players retire in the last week, the Raiders also. So we'll talk about abusive coaching. But the other two issues that you listed, one was greater pay, and the other was um, Rule 50. And I was wondering if you could explain, um, for those who don't know, what Rule 50 is and how it specifically affects athletes. Absolutely. So Rule 50 was created by the International Olympic Committee after 1968, with 1968 the moment in which Tommy Smith and John Carlos very famously raised their fists to protest um, police brutality and racial discrimination in the U.S. And so after that happened, and, and they were totally like thrown out of the Olympic Village, really seen as like depicted as really disgraced traitors and all these things by both the IOC, the U.S. Olympic Committee, and the, the, much of the U.S. public. So the IOC implemented um, Rule 50 in order to um, prevent 
future athletes from doing that because the IOC claimed and has always historically claimed that they are an apolitical organization, right? That they don't want, you know, that, that the coming together for the Olympic Games is meant to come together in the spirit of peace and friendship and sports and competition and not politics. When I think, as you all know, and have documented well, and as many scholars and, and we talk about the end of sport, the Olympics have always been a political project. They've always been a cishet white supremacist project. They've always been a colonialist project, which I will, you know, a lot of people disagree with that, but they've always been very imperialist um, from their inception. Um, and so this Rule 50, it, it was also was sort of meant to shield the IOC's own politics, right, to make it seem as if the IOC is like a politically neutral project, which is absolutely not. Now, a lot of people have protests, I mean, have really been calling for Rule 50 to be taken down for decades and decades. And I think what has been most significant as of late is that the U.S. Olympic Committee has actually, they've created a committee for, I think, social and racial justice. I don't remember the exact terms, but it is for mainly of, of U.S. athletes. And these this committee came together and essentially said, like, we need to stand behind our athletes who are going to be protesting. And so the U.S. Olympic Committee in March of this year of 2020 came out and said that they were not going to punish any athletes who protested at the Olympic Games they said that they support uh, protest and, and sort of actions that support social and racial justice. And they said, like, anything that's um, sort of white supremacist or racist that they are not going to support. Right. So they don't support those politics, but they support genuine uh, racial and social justice, which I mean, that statement was actually really significant for that to come from the U.S. Olympic Committee. The IOC after that maintained Rule 50 and then right before the Olympic Games, I don't remember the exact date, but they said that they were modifying their Rule 50 to say that athletes could protest or could show their politics before competition started, um, but that athletes specifically cannot protest on the medal podium, which in 1968 was when Smith and um Carlos did it and which uh, other people have done it. Gwen Berry, um, Ray Simboden, and other people have, have done it. Um, I think they actually, I think they've all done it on the podium. Actually, I may not be correct about that. So that was sort of their way of allowing for the possibility for, for people to demonstrate their politics. Um, but obviously the metal podium is when all the flags are up in the air, including um, the IOC flag, the national flags, right? All these things. So that's why it's a particularly powerful moment. So that is kind of rule 50 um, in a nutshell. Mm. John Carlos, who, uh, as um, uh, Joanna just talked about, one of the guys who raised his fist at the 1968 Mex Mexico City Olympics, great memoir, co-written with friend of the pod, Dave Zirin. Really mm. worth reading. Very, really interesting book. Excellent. Yeah, it's great. He's great. He's very political. And yeah. obviously that was a big moment in Mexican politics and internationally, mm. so... I feel like the IOC probably, like if they could go back in time and tell Jesse Owens not to win, they would because it's just a little too political for their Is it the most evil organization on earth? That's because my question. Is the has, IOC the most evil organization? There's competition, but they have a seat at the table, which I don't think is a good thing. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what makes the IOC partly so powerful is because there's so much buy-in, right? They, they've convinced, right. and it's not just them, right? It's the IOC, it's FIFA, it's mm -hmm, the International sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Athletics Federation, it's the NCAA. You know, I mean, it's basically, they're, they're all intermeshed with one another, even if they don't want to admit it, which just makes them all awful and all horrible. <laughs> they're all the worst. <laughs> I mean, so, it's funny, you know, just listening to you talk, I don't mean to interrupt you, but, uh, but in terms of what to do about this situation, 
I mean, I, you know, I think more and more people see what you just said, that the Olympics are, uh, it's so fundamentally flawed. I mean, on the one hand, there's this whole history as, of the Olympics as a kind of propaganda tour. And then uh, the other thing is that every two or four years, they parachute into a city, get people to, to fund all of this infrastructure, which they don't need, which costs a kajillion dollars. And then afterwards, it just rots you know, and then it's like these athletes are uh, are, are used and, and set aside in so many cases, right? Mm -hmm. Except for, a, you know, a, a few people who maybe they play a, a sport like basketball or something. They have separate careers. This is kind of a... So people work their whole lives to get to this moment and then are just totally exploited like you're, you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes me wonder, is there any way to salvage this? And if not... What, what do you say, What I mean, uh, this is a difficult question, but there are some people who play sports who that's their only time to, to shine, right? I mean, it's their only, if you're, if you are one of the world's great javelin throwers, I don't even know, the Olympics is, is it, that's your championship. And if you say, okay, we're not going to do this, well then, you know, obviously someone, but that if, if you're going to kind of continue with that model, there has to be some fundamental changes. And I wonder if the solution is some kind of unionization effort of athletes or, I mean, more and more clearly potential host cities are saying, nope, we're not interested, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But, I, you know, is there any obvious answer to these problems? Besides high profile athletes just being like, nope, I'm not going to do it. And that kind of putting some kind of political pressure on them. Is that, that maybe that's too hard a question. I, I really don't mean to. No, yeah. no, I, it's a great question. And I think, and, and I mean, as someone like, I'm not, a, like, I don't watch NCAA sport. I don't watch pro sport, but I watch the Olympics. Right. I mean, I, yeah. I watched a little bit of these Olympics. I really tried not to. And then was, was with some people and they had it on and I wasn't going to say turn it off because I also wanted to watch it. Um, so I've recently kind of decided that like the, I don't think the Olympics can be reformed. I don't think, um, I don't think the IOC can be reformed. I think it needs to be totally done away with and restructured from the ground up. And I think they need to be restructured around a couple things. One is, and maybe, maybe called something else. I don't think it should be called the Olympic games, but I, it needs to be centered around athletes because I think like you said, right, the Olympics are one of the few times for athletes and so, so many sports to shine. I mean, I was a swimmer, so I care most about swimming and like there really isn't much of an infrastructure outside of the Olympic games for that much less, you know, like, especially those track and field events. I mean, really, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the international, the, like uh, world championships and stuff like that. But I mean, the U S there is some viewership from that, but it's not like a huge thing elsewhere in the world. It's more popular, but anyway, so I think it would need to be something that was centered around athletes in terms of like pay, healthcare, institutional support, and also to remove the inequities whereby athletes in richer countries have more access, right, to to the training and the support that they need, whereas athletes in and in, in less wealthy countries don't have that. Um, and then also, I mean, they also need to be centered around the, the, the lives and the health and the needs of the people living in the places where the games might happen. Right. That's the, it's the other huge thing um, yeah. is that, I mean, they just they, you know, dispossess so many people. They cause so much harm, so much policing, so much money. 
I don't know how you kind of square away how you would reconcile all of these needs. But I, I think it is like we don't know because they've never done it. I think that's right. the other thing right? we've never really done it. There yeah. have been examples of like workers Olympics and stuff like that, which I am not as as informed about that as I, I wish I were and I need to be. Um, so we do have examples of kind of more like athlete centered, a kind of worker centered global competitions. Um, but I just don't think it can be reformed, which is really sad. And, and I mean, that's why, I mean, athletes are so wedded to the Olympic games, right? Because there isn't really much comparable things that are available to them for that. Mm-hmm. There's a great movie. Um, I think Steven Soderbergh did a couple of years ago called high flying bird, which is, um, about basketball. Mm-hmm. But the point of the movie is, is, is trying to push the players to forming their own league, and right. I think one of the one of the saddest, grossest realities of, of this Olympic season, and it's really jarring, especially during a global pandemic, is knowing that the people of Japan, it sounds like from polls and statistics and stuff, are very against this Olympics, do not want it there. There's not even the 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 carrot on the stick of like a live Olympics. Like you watch these games in these empty arenas that could be anywhere in the world. It wouldn't matter where you can't tell, you don't get any sense of where it is or the culture or the people. And yet it's still being held because they need to make money. Like they want to make money. It's all, it doesn't matter that during a global pandemic, the people of a country have been clear. We don't want this and we can't even attend it. Like there's no, this isn't your typical, like, ah, I'll take the risk and go. Nobody's going, but still, right. because that sickness is there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just think that's such a unique, gross visual for, for things. Now, speaking of um, just a, a sad buffet of grossness, um, I want to dive nice into. Transition there. <laughs> thank you. I want to dive into um, one of the specific athletes um, that has come up today, and there's a bunch we could choose from. Like we, we mentioned earlier, Naomi Osaka. We had a friend of the pod, uh, Louisa Thomas, was on a couple months ago from the New Yorker, and talked about. Um, you mentioned the media complaining, like, "Well, we have to be there for press conferences." And Louisa pointed out that if you actually attend these press conferences and hear the kinds of questions these athletes are exposed to from reporters who don't cover the game, reporters who will ask extremely insensitive questions on race, on gender. Um, it's not like we're missing critical information, but there's Osaka who withdrew from the mandatory press conference and then from Milton itself. Um, Simone Biles, who not only withdrew from the, the competition this year, but in 2018, um, refused to return to train at the Caroli Ranch, where a lot of this abuse had gone on for years, where a lot of officials had worked to keep it quiet. Shikari Richardson, who was banned, not did not withdraw, but was banned this year for um, smoking marijuana in Oregon, where it's completely legal, after finding out, and I didn't know this till researching it today, she found out her mother passed away from a reporter. She didn't even know the information herself. She found out that way and was obviously emotionally shook um, she gets banned for doing that sort of thing in a substance that's decriminalized at least or legal in 39 of the 50 states. But the one I want to focus on right now is Becca Myers. Um, Becca Myers has won six medals as a Paralympic swimmer. Um, and as you said earlier, um, Johanna, she pulled out of the Paralympics this year. Let me let me read some of this because this is such a it's such a story. So Myers has mm-hmm. Usher syndrome. She's been deaf since she was born. Uh, her eyesight has progressively deteriorated over the course of her life. And as you said, in 2016, um, when she competed in Rio, her mother was there basically as her personal care assistant. So she needs help. She tried to do it with no help initially, uh, got lost one day looking for the dining hall, felt very traumatized, understandably, by that. Um, Her mother came and helped her. 
This time around, her mother was not allowed to go to the Olympics, but Myers requested a personal care assistant because she said, like, I can't get my luggage out of the plane if I have to go to the bathroom. Very understandable human things. And then it was denied. Um, she couldn't get it. The, the, the U.S. committee told her that it was because of Japan and Tokyo wasn't allowing non-essential personnel to come. And Myers' point was that she went over this with them months before the games happened. The only follow-up she heard was when she told them she was resigning, they sent a letter saying they were now looking for her replacement, which made her feel obviously dismissed. And uh, she said, quote, I'm disgusted as an athlete. I did everything correct for this organization. I won medals. I trained so hard, especially during the postponement and pandemic. I wanted to be the best athlete. I feel like I was kicked in the teeth. Like they don't just care about anyone. And I wanted to ask you about this um, because of your background in competitive swimming at such a high level. Athletes are, you know, I don't always like the idea that they're wired differently because I think that allows for a lot of behaviors to be exempted that are, are just not acceptable. But I do think that to succeed at that level of competition, you do have to be hyper competitive. When you read someone like Becca Myers saying what she's saying or Adam Peaty, who's a British swimmer um, who has talked at length recently about his training and how much goes in. And he has set like 20 world records. He has no interest in stopping. He wants to test himself. If you were a swimmer, you know about, you know, the challenge of your competitors, the challenge within. How hard does an institution or a sport have to push someone at the very top of their game to be like, you know what, I don't even want to do this because you're that flagrantly, you know, uncaring of my of my humanity. As in, like, what is the limit for athletes to get to that point where they're like, I'm done? I I guess what I, I guess what I'm curious is like you you were competitive, you were around competitive people. You obviously loved swimming, but were there points in your own career where you were, where the conflict of what the institution or the, or the, the sport was demanding of you was such that even though you loved it, you were just like, I don't think this is worth it. Um, sadly, no, but I was a really different person when I was in college. And I, and I think that probably the people who I swam with in college are probably a little bit surprised about kind of maybe seeming as if I've done like an about face because I was mm. that dedicated person. I, I swam through everything. I was always there. I pretty much, and I was, I went above and beyond in terms of attending additional practices. I was very much not like a swim at all costs, but like I was pretty darn close I mean, I've talked about this like openly on Twitter and on the end of sport and other places. I mean, I had multiple um, bouts of anorexia and like eating disorders. And even though both times I slipped into those eating um, issues were directly because of my cishet white male coaches telling me I need to lose weight rather than being like, that's really effed up. I believed mm -hmm. it like, and I, I conform. Mm -hmm. So, so that's why I say like, I, you know, if I, if I think back to how I was in college and this is like awesome to 2008, I mean, I had no, even when we had, we had a sexual harassment scandal on my swim team between male and female swimmers because swimming is a, swimming is a co-ed sport. So usually the teams swim together, which is a little bit different mm. than a lot of other sports. We have one of those. And even when it blew up in our faces, even then I wasn't like, I'm done. So I just ate it all up. And I just, I mean, and, and when that sexual harassment thing, I did stand up and say something, but it wasn't enough to push me over the edge, which is really sad, which really just goes to show 
I think how 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 successful the propaganda is and how it te- teaches you to conform and teaches you to put your head down. And I think swimming is also an interesting sport because like you really see very, very, very little activism, very, very little, very few athletes speaking up and saying anything negative about it. So with Simone Manuel, I mean, she is one of the very few people that's ever said anything negative about or anything cool of swimming. I mean, she actually in the, the last few days said something about how she wanted to take a break from the media because it was getting to be a lot. I mean, hmm. you don't see other swimmers saying that. I mean, what Adam Petey did is also very rare. I mean, Missy Franklin, who was a very successful swimmer for the last two Olympics. I mean, she came out like a year or two ago and essentially was like, my shoulders are both really messed up because of swimming. And like she detailed it, which that was also really rare for a swimmer to come forward and say, like, this is how much I've been harmed. I mean, it had more of a positive spin to it because that's kind of how she is and how she that's how she is as far as I know. But it's very, very rare for swimmers to do that. So. I mean, I, I think I, I was just totally dedicated. And obviously now I have a very different mindset of kind of peel back the curtain. I've done a lot of self-examination to figure out, you know, how much did I contribute to that kind of harmfulness? How did it harm for me? How did I harm other people? It's something that's an ongoing project for me. I mean, I think if I were an athlete now, maybe I would feel differently because it's much more of the zeitgeist, right? It's much more of the conversation and people are more aware of these things. But I definitely was not. Unfortunately, it was not in college. And in terms of even institutional pressure, I mean, my school was such a low D1 school. And I, I mentioned these before that my my experience maybe doesn't quite fit the kind of traditional narrative that we usually hear. And that swimming was very much kind of like on the chopping block. Not so much while I was there. The team has since been eliminated, but like we were very aware that we were not a high priority and that we constantly had to prove ourselves, which I think that the scarcity, the kind of scarcity mentality made us in some ways even more devoted because like we need to continue doing what we're doing. Otherwise our team is going to be eliminated. So it's, which is kind of working from that scarcity mindset is also, I think really harmful and kind of motivates you in a way that makes you also, maybe you don't feel institutional support that like you have to win for the school, but it's, you need to do well, or we may not have a team any longer. And it wasn't quite that overt, but like it was there, like our men's team a few times was really close to kind of not making it, um, which swimming is not a particularly popular sport amongst men for a lot of different reasons that I could get into. Um, so it's, it's a kind of a different mindset than I think what you think about when you think about sports and high performing sports and the pressure to perform well and to conform and keep quiet. You mentioned, um, you know, at the college level, I think people maybe can see more easily, you know, the internal pressure that athletes put on themselves because you're you're trained to identify with the school you're trained as a young you're as a young person you're working with a coach that you either admire or fear or some combination of the two especially students who have partial or complete scholarships but it's interesting that this also happens at the professional level and in a story that kind of has been breaking more and more recently um i mentioned earlier um Kaya mccullough from the washington spirit in reading about this team where now four different players have left and there have been alleg- allegations of verbal abuse and racial abuse and all kinds of just ugly things. One of the interesting details to emerge from this is, I think, like you were saying, you have this pressure that, well, we have to keep it going. We don't really have other options. The average salary for an NWSL player is $22,000 a year. And the league tries to kind of wipe this out by saying, like, well, they get free housing whatever, it's 22000 a year. It's not enough 
especially I'm going to guess they don't have a union. It's certainly not enough that you can say, all right, forget it. I'll just go to the other women's league that's out there. Like, obviously there's, there's a lack of options and, and there's just a lack of institutional support. And, and one of the other ways this came up, I didn't know about this um, until reading about this, but some of the players said that they were reluctant to speak out because the coach in their league has such disproportionate power over their careers, even when their contract expires in the NWSL, the team retains like ownership basically of the of their agency. And I didn't know till I read this today. It said that the NWSL, until earlier this year, had no formal harassment policy. Like what kind of a you you can't worry. I've I've literally this is not an exaggeration. When I was younger, I applied once for a job at Dunkin' Donuts. It was it was not an easy time in my life. I had to sit there and watch like a half hour video about harassment at Dunkin' Donuts. Everywhere I have ever worked, I've had to watch a video. But in the NWSL, there's no, there wasn't even a harassment policy, despite the fact that the coach, I think his name is Richard Burke. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been talk about about this for years with Richie Burke, and yet there's not even a policy on the books. What, that's just designed to oppress people. Yeah. That's not a question. I'm sorry. No. I'm just shocked by re- by reading all that and recognizing that. And you would never know. Like, my daughter started playing soccer this year. She wants to start watching that league specifically, the NWSL. You're sitting at home, and all you get is – and to tie it back to what you were saying to try to make some sense of this, I think that it's it's a league that's desperate to get off the ground. It's a league that's desperate for some solidity. So this kind of story, obviously, isn't the sort of thing that gets publicized as much – but it makes you wonder what is going – like, again, if this is what you know is happening and you know the league cares so little, there are players on the team who've talked about Burke abusing players to the point that when it was time for a water break, one player didn't want to come and get hydrated because she was afraid he would scream in her face. Mm. There was a rookie who had a, a mental – had a panic attack basically right there on the field because he kept berating her. And if we know this – and this is just the news coming out of the league that's obviously trying to survive. I'm just left thinking about your story and wondering how many people are seeing or experiencing worse, but thinking, I don't want to, you know, I have teammates trying to make a living. I don't want to be the one to, to bring down the gravy train is a strong way of putting it. But you know what I mean? There's that internal pressure of like, I don't want to be the whistleblower, even though everyone here is suffering. No, I mean, that is precisely the question that Every we all need to be asking ourselves, right? And regardless of whether it's about sports or not, right? Is it that the people that we hear of that actually feel comfortable and protected enough to to come forward and speak out? That's just a drop in the bucket, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of what actually happens. And you're 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 absolutely right. And like th- these are not the things that we hear about and that we see when we watch sports on TV and when we put our kids in sports and. I mean, we've actually been talking, maybe this is spilling the beans too much, but we've actually been talking on behind the scenes of our podcast that we might have kind of an episode or a series of episodes about, you know, what, what parents might think through when they, when they put their kids in sports, because there's no easy answer. And, you know, if I were to do it all over again, if I were my mom, I probably still would have put me in in, in year round club swimming, just in the sense that like, I don't think. I was so dedicated and I so wanted to do it mm-hmm. that, you know, what do you tell your child? If your child is like, this is what I want to do. I don't want to do anything more than do this thing. Right. You know, I want to watch this thing and that's, and that's hard. And, and I don't have children, but I, 
can't imagine how hard that would be outside of thinking sort of through how, how I, what I would say, what I would think about it. But I think that's precisely the question we need to be asking is what are all the other stories of abuse out there and of exploitation that we don't know about? And the reality is that we'll never know um, because of all the constraints that we've been talking about and, you know, fearing coaches, loving coaches, somewhere in between and like mm-hmm. being deciding that it's okay to kind of put up with X, Y, or Z because you're doing what you love and, you know, what is a tipping point for you for wanting to kind of pull out? And, you know, Kaya's story just came out today. We interviewed her recently, very recently, and just came out with an episode of End of Sport. And, like, we obviously didn't know any of this stuff that was going to come out. And we were like, crap, when we saw it and, you know, just just had absolutely no idea. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's awful and sad. And and um, I don't know if you all know um, Kira McCormick. I don't. Um, we have. We had her on around the ho- the winter holidays, and she's uh was a Canadian professional soccer player, and she has like horrific stories that she's detailed on her very very extensively on her on her blog, and has come forward and been really open about sharing the experiences of abuse mm-hmm. that she witnessed that she experienced that are widespread across Canadian professional soccer. So, you know, and I think what these stories point to is that it's not limited to any one sport. It's not limited to any one age group or country or or culture or anything, right? It is widespread. And we just, we don't even know the half of it. And I think we're so conditioned to like hear kind of random snippets of things that maybe, maybe happen and kind of dismiss it as like, oh, that's a bad apple or, oh, that can't be true because so-and-so maybe said they had a good experience with this or that person. But I, I think, I mean... Thank, thank goodness for for Kaya kind of being willing to come forward and really speak to those experiences and, and just being so incredibly brave. I mean, she's like 23. Yeah. I mean, what was I doing at 23? <laughs> like I was putting my head down and studying in grad school and mm-hmm. certainly not speaking out about anything that I went through, even though I'd already retired from something, much less, you know, advocating for better, you know, um, conditions for within academia. You know, I was not doing any of these things. Mm-hmm. So just really, really impressed with her and all the people that are speaking out. And I think, again, to kind of go back to your point is that we just don't know all of these stories. And so, you know, I, it's not enough for these kind of droplets of athletes to, to kind of come forward. We need, we unfortunately need more to come forward because the burden is unfortunately on them to attest to these experiences that are ongoing because the people that are in power are very invested in maintaining their positions. And like you said, and and they, they almost like keep athletes in precarity in order to sustain their own control and oppression. I I really think that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you two last questions and I want to make sure that I'm phrasing this one correctly because it's not something that I know anything about, but I, I know I've seen you tweet about it. Um, You've talked in the past about racism in swimming, and I'm curious what the historical connection is there and how did it manifest in the past versus ways that you you see it manifesting today, if it's any different or or not? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's such a great question. There have been really amazing historians like Dr. Kevin Dawson, who wrote this amazing book that I really recommend everyone read his book along with Jeff, uh, Dr. Jeff Wiltz's book. Kevin Dawson's book covers 400 years from the 1400s to the 1800s, and he essentially looks at West African aquatic cultures prior to, during, and after colonization, European colonization and enslavement. And he essentially like documents or found all these materials showing that West African cultures lived 
along the coast. They live along waterways. And so they were expert swimmers. And, and he argues they were the best swimmers, the best swimmers, the best surfers, the best canoers, divers in the world um, prior to European colonization. And so he shows, you know, and, and I won't get dive too much in the weeds, but he essentially shows how, you know, like they were expert swimmers and, and white uh, white Europeans were not. They feared the water for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different religious and cultural reasons, um, and how um, when they were um, captured and enslaved and, 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 and forced over to, to the Americas, those of them who, who still lived along coastal and waterways were able to use their, their swimming and their diving abilities to essentially gain a little bit of wiggle room in terms of a little bit of wages, a little bit more kind of freedoms while they were being enslaved. Hmm. And then essentially it wasn't until like the late 1800s when we have immigrants coming over from Europe. Um, and until that point, they were like expert divers. And then European communities came, immigrants came over from like Greece and, and the Mediterranean that, that essentially like displaced a lot of the um, African or African diasporic divers and swimmers. Hmm. And then Jeff Wiltz's book takes us into the 20th century where he looks at how um, once people start um, getting into like recreational swimming and bathing culture, how a lot of pools um, initially were not segregated, but then once they decided to allow women to go to pools and to go to public pools at the same time as men, that because white men fear that black and brown men would, would sort of prey on their white women, that's when they racially segregated pools. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it wasn't just bl- black men. It was also um, like p- other people, other immigrant culture, other immigrant communities who were considered to be black. So, um, you know, Syrian and Middle Eastern, mm-hmm. Italian, you know, a lot of those communities and, 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 and people who were considered to be black and brown were only allowed to go to public pools on like Sundays, which were the days when the water was the dirtiest because after Sundays they would clear the water, they would clean the water before the next week began. Wow. And so they're really only allowed very limited access to water. And then there are, you know, there are efforts to build public pools and cities. Um, and Philadelphia actually had a really, really rich swimming uh, community for the black and brown community for a while in New York City. But then what happens is that a lot of public funding dries up for pool areas. So therefore, they don't have access to pools and don't learn how to swim. Then the other issue is that um, bodies of water and, and predominantly the South and to some extent the Midwest, too, they are turned into sites of trauma and, and beaches as well. They're turned into sites of trauma, most famously with Emmett Till, who was lynched. And then his body was thrown in the, in the and I think it's the Tallahatchie River. Uh, that's actually, that's not the name of the river, but it's something like that. So he, his body is thrown in the river. Yeah, it was. Uh, yep. Okay. So, so, so then, so then you actually, and, and, you know, beaches were segregated and, and, and there are so many stories about, you know, acid being thrown in the pool in St. Augustine, Florida. So it really is like white supremacy in action. And this is the long legacy of swimming that um, competitive swimming continues. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the, this white supremacy has, has contributed directly, is, is the direct cause for um, these horrific drowning rates um, that we have. And I don't have numbers and, and, and figures in front of me, but you can just Google it and they're really, really awful. But when it comes to, you know, competitive swimming now, I mean, because public pool access across the U.S. continues to be very low and be very limited. And in order to have access to a pool in a lot of places, it means you need to have money. You need to live in certain areas and neighborhoods. So, for example, I grew up in a suburb outside Richmond, which is called Midlothian, Virginia. It's a very middle class, to some extent, upper middle class neighborhood. So we had we could walk to a pool that was relatively affordable. 
I mean, my dad was an ER doctor, so we were middle, upper middle class for sure, but we could walk there Mm -hmm. and we had easy access to it, right? That is such a privileged, privileged experience that so many people didn't have. And so it was very easy for me to learn how to swim. We had a club swim team that was very, very expensive, but was only like a 15 minute drive away, you know? So again, like I just had all these like inroads and and really could not have the, the, the road to being a competitive swimmer could not have been easier for me. I did experience a lot of sexual harassment, but like the, you know, the racism was an issue because I was a direct beneficiary of it. Um, and so that is the legacy of swimming. And then we see that today with, you know, you, you look at the team members of, of, of competitive of the Olympic uh, Olympics in terms of who's on the pool deck. And it's predominantly white people. We had the recent um, FINA, which is the International Swimming Federation, that very famously rejected the inclusive swimming cap made by Soul Cap. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. a, a big thing in the news a couple months ago. And and FINA, you know, using racist pseudoscientific phrenology, said that these caps did not conform to the quote unquote natural form of the head. Wow. I mean, if that isn't like racist phrenology, wow. I don't know what is. Um, and also, they also said that um, no swimmers had ever requested to use these caps in, in elite competition. So therefore, there's never been any precedent, you know, the whole precedent argument being trotted out, you know, and and, and USA Swimming, this happened a month and a half ago. And USA Swimming, the, organi- the governing body of, of swimming in the U.S. has yet to release any, you know, any kind of statements condemning the white supremacist actions of that and supporting their efforts toward towards inclusivity. So, you know, it is just, it is just ongoing. And then Simone Biles, I mean, we talked about the media. I mean, she, um, at the Olympic trials didn't swim very well. Um, and then she made it be known that she was suffering from overtraining syndrome, which is a really common thing in swimming that is something we don't talk about. Which happens, I'm sorry, you said Biles, it's Simone. Sorry, Simone Manuel. That's right, Simone Manuel. Yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. um, and, and, and in this press conference, I mean, the, the, you know, the sports media was like continuing to ask her all these questions about what is overtraining syndrome and all these things when like, hey, you can look it up and figure it out. Right. <laughs> um, and, and my friend Najee Ali, who runs, who, who is the host of the Crossing Lane Lines podcast, he interviewed my, my uh, a colleague named Dr. Letitia Brown. And Letitia was basically like, why are they like, continuing to ask her about it, you know, it's clear they didn't believe her. It's clear that they wanted her to like try out her, 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 her trauma and her, her, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, her syndrome for them, you know, so it's ongoing. The media plays a role in it. Um, USA swimming plays a role in it. I mean, white swimmers do not say hardly anything to support her or BLM or anything. So, you know, it's just that the sport is like cloaked in white supremacy Mm -hmm. and even like white swimmers that I am friends with, you know, they talk about mental health in very broad ways, but they don't condemn white supremacy. They don't condemn the heart of the issues that, that lead to mental health issues. Um, So sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but that's kind of like all of my issues with sort of swimming in a nutshell. It's interesting. That's great to know. Um, I only knew, As a matter of public policy, I grew up um, in Nassau County on Long Island, and if you drive, especially eastern Nassau County, on some of the highways, the overpasses are very low. And when I was a kid, I just thought this was a charming quirk of local architecture. And then I learned recently that Robert Moses designed them intentionally that way, so buses couldn't come from the city and bring um, black and brown kids to the beaches on Long Island. So... It's, it's a, wow. it's, you know, it happens in the pools, it happens in the beaches. I had no idea any of that history. That's really interesting. Wow. And I definitely want to read that book that you mentioned, because there's a lot of stuff in there I never knew that's really interesting. 
Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, Jeff Waltz's book is called Contested Waters. Okay. And um, Kevin Dawson's book is called Undercurrents of Power. Nice. Um, so both very powerful works. And lastly, speaking of books, you mentioned earlier that you were working on a book. Can you tell us what you're working on? Or is this still in the cloak and dagger stage of the process? It's not on the cloak and dagger stage. I mean, it's a it's a very slow work in progress continuation of my dissertation probably won't be out for a couple of years because I'm trying to like, I'm in a tenure track position, I'm trying to fight the like, publish, publish, publish and slow down, Mm -hmm. um, which I know other people don't have the luxury to have. Um, So it's tentatively called uh, changing the global game. Hungarian athletes and international sport during the Cold War. And it looks at um, some of the dynamics I talked about earlier, which is, you know, athletes' perspectives being um, athletes um, behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. But it more broadly looks at how, looking at the KC of Hungary, how the Hungarian sport community interacted with the International Olympic Committee. Mm. So I look at athletes, I look at communist sport officials, and I look at the leadership of the IOC and essentially look at how they interacted um, from 1948 to the end of the Cold War, which is 1989. And sort of my main argument is that Hungarian athletes were successful and not only influenced in the nature of their conditions, their, their working and their sporting conditions within socialist Hungary. I mentioned earlier the impact of 1956 and how athletes successfully negoti- sort of navigated or, or advocated to have better conditions, but how they ultimately ended up impacting international sport through that. And this is Hungary is a small country of 10 million people. They have this really kind of amazing um, sport history where um, they won like the third most medals of all competing nations at the 1952 Olympic Games, which is really kind of amazing. And sort of how do these athletes understand their positionality and how do they understand their cultural power um, and really sort of seize the moment in 1956 and kind of the broad ramifications of having done so. Um, and, and really one of my main aims at the book, going back to what Joni mentioned earlier, sort of about upending these like Cold War narratives and really challenging what the Cold War was and what Cold War sport was about and kind of showing a, a case that's different from East Germany, from the Soviet Union, those two dominant cases being the ones that the public thinks they know about. They don't really know what it's about, but those are the ones that people point to with like East German doping and kind of oppression in the Soviet Union um, and kind of hungry being a bit more sort of humane case um, that we can learn a lot from. I mean, it's really interesting. It sounds like there was a big transition during the, from the, was it Rakosi to the Qatar years before and after 56, right? And that that had a major impact on how athletes were treated. Is that is that kind of a central theme of the book? Yeah, that's yeah, that's absolutely uh, yeah, that's a huge that's a huge theme of the book. And and you're totally right. So right, so Rakoshi, he is the guy who ruled Hungary in um, 1948 to 1953, and then in ni- after 1956, there's um, the guy uh, Janos Kadar who comes to power after 56. Um, right. And, and and within Hungarian society broadly, there is um, after 56 is such a big moment that the um, after a period of like reprisals and stuff like that, the, the, the socialist state does really back off of their repression and, and really does allow citizens to live a bit more freely, um, especially compared to other countries, um, especially like Albania and Romania and, and East Germany. And then within the sport realm, absolutely, it's it's a it's it's a more kind of humane um, life for Hungarian athletes, and a lot of it, a lot of athletes remembered it very fondly when I interviewed them. 
when really, you know, if they're talking to like an American, they really have a lot of reasons to tell me how bad it was, right? To kind of tell me how much they suffered and how much, how awful it was. And those stories did come up. But I, for example, I talk a lot about smuggling with athletes traveling abroad and smuggling goods and the state kind of looking away at, at, and allowing them to do that. Mm. But that's a real big, um, definitely a big point of the book is kind of like athletes had agency and they made use of it. It's a bit different than what we see in like the American context that we tend to know and, 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 and kind of think the most about. But that even under an authoritarian regime, cultural figures such as athletes who are very prized by the state, but also surveilled and really heavily monitored by the state, that a lot of them really figure how to kind of work within and around the boundaries that the government sets for them. And and because international sport is international, right? The Olympic Games goes back a half a century before the Cold War began, that being part of international sport allowed people to travel abroad, allowed athletes to defect and kind of think about other opportunities. Um, so it's kind of a unique atmosphere um, compared to kind of other cultural ones. Fascinating. And so, yeah, so that's the book. So that's what I'm working on. Awesome. Is there anything else that you would like to plug or that our audience should look out for from you or from the um, End of Sports pod? I don't think so. Uh, we took, I guess we took like kind of a hiatus over the summer. We're starting to get back to it and record mm-hmm. more episodes. Um, but I think like, like what you all are doing on this podcast, I think just like really trying to understand what do athletes go through, mm-hmm. um, really amplify athletes voices and kind of think about the harm that they go through and the harm that we as sports fans might be contributing to and sort of how, how to kind of reflect on our own fandom which I think you all do very well. Um, so I think just kind of um, check us out on Twitter. We're on Twitter way, way, way too much. Um, <laughs> but I think that's kind of kind of been our outlet. So um, yeah. check us out on Twitter and, and yeah, uh, listen to our episodes, I guess. It's good that that come ac- comes across in the pod because in real life, we're the least self-reflective people that you'll ever meet. You know, we're totally <laughs> like, uh, you know, oblivious, but that's good. We're shooting for that on the pod. I'm trying to... Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much um, for being with us. And um, Dr. Johanna Mellis or Sinus, we will, I'm sure, have you on again. There's still a lot more we could be talking about, and you've raised a lot of interesting stuff to think about. And uh, we hope to see you again in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Keep fighting the good fight. Yeah, Yeah, definitely will.